hello. Your QL fandom uncle and auntie are here with giant sunglasses, brown liquor in a flask, a folded $5 bill to slip into your hand when nobody's looking, lukewarm takes, occasional rides on the discourse, deep dives into artistry and industry, and most importantly, simping. Lots of simping. I'm Ben. I'm Nini. And this is The Conversation. About once a season, we plan to swan in and shoot the shit on faves, flops, and trends that we've been noticing in the BL, GL, or QL industry. Between seasons, you can find us typing way too many words on Tumblr. And welcome to the Vibe Awards. Vibe standing for Very Important Internet BL Awards for 2022. So Ben and I are here. We've sort of been through the ringer in terms of nominating things, had a couple of very polite arguments, and we are here now. Very nice to each other, don't worry. We were very nice to each other. We always are. And we are here now to discuss the winners of the Vibe Awards. So uh, in this episode, which is part one, we will be looking at our awards for actors and ships. And our first acting award is Rising Star or Best Newbie. Ben, take it away. I wanted to do this in this order because I think it's important for us to get the basic stuff out of the way. Like, Who did we like? Who were our faves this year? And so we started with the best newbie because these are people we're hoping to look forward to in the future. So we nominated in the pre-show Nunu Chawarin, Bible Wichipas, Pete Wasatorn, and Barcode Tennyson. Let's talk about process. So Okay. Before so, I get too deep into it, tell me why you chose the three you voted for. I guess go through that. Okay, so I voted for Ninu, Bible, and Barcode. And the reason that I did that is when I'm thinking of a rising star, I'm looking to the future. I'm looking at what they've done, but I'm also seeing their potential. So for me, those three um, had the best potential that I saw all of 2022. New faces who really made me want to see more of them as actors. So that's why I ended up with these three. Who did you end up picking and why did you pick them? I chose Barcode and Nunu. And it, for me, comes down to, of the newcomers, who gave performances that we're probably going to refer back to and who debuted with the most immediate impact on the industry that they entered. And so I voted for Barcode because... He holds his own against a veteran actor in a complicated romantic role. Mm -hmm. And he has to sing and he will be directly compared to Jeff. And we weren't necessarily positively predisposed to him because there were some consternation from those of us who've been around about gameplay being recast and Barco Mm -hmm. taking the role instead. And Mm -hmm. so with a lot going against him, I think Barco did an incredible job in his very first role and had a lot of great support in that role. For Nunu, 
he has to play high heat against an older actor. And there are complications for that in Thailand. He also has to sing a lot in his new role with Cutie Pie. And even beyond that, he ends up doing the soundtrack song for To Sir With Love. And oh. that song, last I checked, had over 40 million streams on oh, YouTube. Wow. So, oh, wow. And that's more than everything he did from the Cutie Pie stuff combined. And I think almost double. And so those two really stood out for me in terms of what were they up against and then... How well did they do with that on the table? Fair, fair. And I mean, I definitely take your point about Nunu and the music in particular. Um, I I actually wasn't so much a, a fan of the music he did on Cutie Pie, but actually today of all days, I watched the first episode of uh, what I guess the fandom is calling Too Cutie Too Pie. That's what I was, I'm calling it. <laughs> Or cutie pie to you. And the song he sang, he sang kind of a trot song in the episode. And I was really, um, I remember thinking, being sort of taken aback because I liked the tone of his voice. I liked the timbre of his voice. I liked the way he was emoting the song. I really quite enjoyed it. And I'm not a huge fan of trot music. So that sort of definitely stood out to me. And then, I mean... I don't do a lot of the behind the scenes stuff, but I have heard how much he is making an impact on the music side of things. And that's all well and good. But I really, really actually in Cutie Pie, I really enjoyed his acting. I We went back and forth between us, I think, when it came to Nunu versus Barcode. I was definitely in the tank for barcode but i think in the end you convinced me so our best newbie is nunu chawarin and it's not Yay! a disservice to sorry it's not meant as a disservice to bible or pete who i think do an incredible job in two very difficult roles this year oh yeah for sure like it what Bible did with Vegas, I Vegas is a very, very difficult character, somebody incredibly hard to like, and somehow he became everybody's blorbo. <laughs> he does a, he does an incredible job, and I think it's because Bible himself is an incredibly empathetic and really thoughtful actor, mm-hmm. and he really understood what he needed to do with that particular character with Vegas. And I also, we didn't talk about him much here, but I think Pete does an incredible job as well playing Sky and Love in the Air, a meme show that people are going to have a lot of complex feelings about. Pete is a standout performer in a very difficult role. I am one of those people who finds Mame difficult, and I did not watch all of Love in the Air, but I watched scenes from Love in the Air, and I think I watched one full episode, and I do remember thinking that Pete was definitely standing out, and I I was actually pretty surprised at the, the quality of the acting in Love in the Air, but I shouldn't have been surprised. Mame does cast good actors. We have a lot um, to say but, about Mame's casting down the road. Don't you worry. Oh, we will. <laughs> we will. And Pete was really good. But I think on balance, if we look at the four nominees that we came up with, I think that I am with Ben. I think in terms of the best movie of 2022, it has to go to Nunu. 
So Nunu Charwin, you will probably never hear this, but we are fans <laughs> congratulations. Of yours. You have won the 2022 Vibe Award for Best Newbie. Okay. So Hands next category. Yes, I, I don't know what what we're gonna give them like some kind of We should of a, hand out a, plates. Should we should. Thing. We should figure it out. <laughs> so our next award is for the best acted scene of the year. And this one had a really long, long list. So I don't think we're going to get into every nominee that we nominated. I think we'll just go with our top three on this one. So our I think top probably three, best. Yeah, our top three best acted scenes uh, of 2022 were as follows. From Not Me, episode 11, Todd and Black fighting. Now, oh my God, this was everything everything i'm it's no secret that i had my problems with not me i also very much enjoyed it in a way that i don't think other people enjoyed it which was a little bit as a parody of the people that you will meet in a leftist movement which i quite enjoyed my that read is, on it that but. is the best read on it i think <laughs> it was so obvious to me i was like oh my god i've been around these people that's but that fight too. that fight between Todd and Black it was it was gripping it was emotional i felt everything that they felt for each other i felt it felt like there were a lot of stakes in play when they were fighting each other it wasn't just about who was going to win it was also about yeah. what winning meant for either and also the fact that they couldn't actually really they couldn't hurt each other when it came down other. to it yeah they couldn't hurt each other like Todd chokes blackout he drowns him and then he's like what have i done and he immediately pulls him out of the pool it's like oh those two are in some kind of love i don't know what kind of love it is whether it's brotherly love whether it's something more erotic because i mean i think we all agree that they fucked right like todd right. and black have fucked as, <laughs> as the resident gun adiphon simp first uh, I was absolutely enthralled with him getting to play with Sing Harrod, who I've been following literally since he started in Lovesick. So mm-hmm. I'm very happy that the rest of the world is figuring out that Sing is incredibly talented. Oh, man. and right now we're watching him in the warp effect. And ooh, we're going to save that, that conversation. Next, ooh, next series, next season, we'll talk about that. But I'm Sing Harit is a great one. And so this fight was, it was everything. It was epic. It was fantastic. So that's our first nominee that we agreed on. So the next nominee that we agreed on was from Ghost Host, Ghost House. And that was Plum and Kevin on the couch in episode four. Now talk about chemistry talk about sexual tension talk about that feeling of wanting to climb out of your skin and into somebody else's it's all there in that scene it's all there and then when the tension breaks and they finally start going at it it's just it's magic it's absolute magic i, I don't know how you felt about it ben i mean obviously you liked it but i don't know if you want to it was really fantastic i think one of the things that stood out to me and i talked about this with you in one of our earlier conversations is there was a lot of really great high heat and sexual chemistry performances this year where actors mm-hmm. really leaned into their characters desire for each other what I think Boy and Todd do that really stood out for me 
was they captured the same thing that Bilkin and PP had in I Told Sunset About mm, You in episode, episode three, three where yes. there was buildup, there was anticipation. It wasn't just that they were willing to do the bed scene. It's that you could feel specifically how and that they wanted each other before mm-hmm. things happen. And in particular, mm-hmm. Boy does a great job playing up Plum's attraction to Kevin's legs. Mm-hmm. And when that scene starts to unfold, a big part of it is Kevin is pushing up against some of the age social politics of Thai society, where he is not really expected or supposed to be an aggressor in an encounter mm-hmm. like that. He's not supposed mm-hmm. to lead with his desire. And it's one of the common themes about their relationship. And they even recontextualize that by choosing to use English pronouns mm-hmm. when they're referring to each other so to make themselves equal. So they use I and you as their pronouns, which is also really fascinating. And there was even a lead-in with their scene about, is this your first time? And a real appreciation for the mechanics of gay sex that we rarely see in genres. And that's something that you and I talk about quite a bit, how unrealistic some of the sexual situations we see characters get into are just because of the mechanics of what they're supposedly doing. Exactly. So those two... Real is real standouts for the year in that regard. So that's why this scene they, made the list. They made me believe. I mean, just that that little micro scene of Plume's eyes sliding towards Kevin's legs, and then really him realizing that he's staring and just turning his head away because he's just he's becoming too enticed. It just it's, it's so real. It's so visceral. I loved it so much. So. After scenes like that, what is the one that tops them all? And, of course, the only, only scene that could have topped those other two scenes, Canon to a, the Eclipse Episode 7 that I'm pretending to sleep, you're pretending to sleep, kiss in the tent. Oh, my God. I <laughs> When I tell you, I lost it. I watched that scene over and over. I just completely lost it. It was so, I don't even know if I have the words to describe what that scene made me feel. They're so tentative. They obviously care very deeply for each other. They obviously love one another. And they're testing the waters over and over and over. But then this is... It really stands out for me because of the way that it reflects the internalized homophobia of the show itself that Mm -hmm. they're exploring along the way. Because Mm -hmm. I was a young boy who went camping sometimes. And so (laughs) I understood so much of the social politics going on there. Like, you have Mm -hmm. to pretend you're asleep because you have to give everyone an excuse. Mm-hmm. And you can't respond too much because it crosses a line of acknowledgement. And so it mm-hmm. requires Louis and Neo to be really, really comfortable with each other because that is a very difficult set of emotional reactions that they have to convey across space there. And, and they can't play them too big either. 
There have no, to be so micro. It's, it's very hard, I think, for some of the Thai actors to play small. I think a lot of the film tradition that many of them maybe grew up on is pretty bombastic. And mm-hmm. that's not a that's not me shiting them. It's just not the the film history that many of them come from. And mm-hmm. so scenes like that are really hard to do, even for experienced actors. And I can't overstate how impressive Neo and Louis were in that particular scene at really capturing the totality of the delayed and unexpressed desire between their two characters. And they take you on a journey in the scene too, because it starts off, it's really tentative. Khan sort of wakes up, he sees to it there, he closes his eyes, he nudges his way towards him. Dua opens his eyes, he sees Khan there, he closes his eyes again, nudges his way towards him, the two of them gently pushing their way towards each other, and then the kiss is butterfly light, because of course it has to be utterly deniable. It's butterfly light. They're both awake, both pretending to be asleep to give each other that out. And then after the kiss, when Khan turns away, and you just see his you see his joy it's bubbling up inside him he can barely hold it inside at that point and all this is happening in a tent surrounded by their friends who are asleep i i can't find the words i really can't find the words and that's why it is the best acted scene of the year for me so neo and louis take a bow you have won the 2022 vibe award for the best acted scene we will be sending you a plate it really was really special. I know they're probably never going to listen to this, but please know I mean, you guys really oh, did the damn thing this year. They did the damn thing. I mean, I don't even want to, I can't even, where do I begin to talk about Neo? I feel like this is not the place, but at some point I'm going to have to talk about well, Neo. He's got a big year ahead of us, so we're going to be talking oh, about Oh, Oh, we are. I'm so excited. Um, okay, so next we have the award for best cast. Okay, so we great, selected ahead. ahead of time... Ken Porsche, The Eclipse, Not Me, Secret Crush on You, and Game Boys 2 for Best okay. Cast. Uh-huh. Nini, so, tell us about yes. your the three you so ended up nominating. My picks, my picks were Ken Porsche, Not Me, and Secret Crush on You. So when I'm looking at a cast, I am looking at the, the whole all the main and supporting characters, how they interact, how they work together, how they gel, for lack of a better word, and how real they all feel interacting as their characters. So for me, it was a no-brainer. There wasn't a single miscast in Ken Porsche, Not Me, or Secret Crush on You for me. Everybody fit their character perfectly gun playing white and black we could talk about that all day and then you've got todd you've got first as yuck i mean my god first pulled out from somewhere the sluttiest energy i have ever seen on screen (laughs) he just sauntered around slanging his dick everywhere it was amazing (laughs) but yeah but i mean he wasn't the only one so special he's part of two different (laughs) casts that made this particular selection not me i mean there were standout casting but generally everybody they cast was perfect for the role everybody fluke gawain as i said ganata pan 
off. <laughs> Oof, we're going to talk about off as well at some point because he has grown leaps and bounds in the last year for me. I'm super impressed with him in a way that I've never been before. Then you have Mon. It's an amazing cast. And then the third cast that I chose was Secret Crush on You. Now, I love unreservedly unironically love secret crush on you i think it was perfect and amazing and i mean i guess we'll get to talk about that a little later as well but the one of the best things about it was the casting and specifically again i always look at the entire cast but i want to give a real specific shout out to sandwich eye because wow how about you what about your three Yeah, so when I'm thinking about the best cast, the question for me is how well, like you, how well does the cast work together? And how effectively do they convey the themes and the global narrative that the story wants to tell? And the question for me becomes, could another collection of people accomplish this? So I selected Ken Porsche, Secret Crush on You, and Game Boys 2. Because the overall talent for the three of those shows stood out to me. And for the most part, I don't think it's a show where you look at one person and you're like, oh, they're they're the reason to watch this show. I think one of the things that stands out for me is how absolutely enormously talented someone like Elijah Ken Lass is in Game Boys 2. And the fact that Kokoi DeSantos, Adriana So, and the rest of the cast managed to hold their own with him in a lot mm-hmm. of scenes because mm-hmm. he's really, really good. And he's a really special actor because he seems to have what Octavia Spencer and Viola Davis have in that mm-hmm. people seem to perform better when they're with him. Mm-hmm. He raises the level. And so... He's that's a really, really special cast to me because Elijah doesn't end up overshadowing the rest of them, which could have happened. Mm-hmm. And Adriana is such a big personality when she's playing mm-hmm. Pearl and she manages to not outshine other people when she's in scenes with them. And it's a, mm-hmm. it's really impressive to me how effectively that cast shared space with each other, particularly in their large group scenes. And in mm-hmm. like you, I was really impressed with the Ken Porsche cast because they're working with a lot less on that show because of all of the tumultuous development process for it. And Mm -hmm. I really like how effectively they performed this a second time. And it's why I really had to acknowledge what they did because this was their second attempt at this show. And there's mm-hmm. any number of ways that that could have gone sideways and been really messed up. Mm-hmm. And it looks like they ended up being better for it. And that's incredibly special. And particularly for a cast of mostly newcomers, mm-hmm. I was incredibly impressed with them. So, yeah, Nini, yeah, for with sure. that said, why don't you go ahead and let the people know who won our best cast plate? So our best cast for 2022, the Vibe Award goes to Ken Porsche because they've got a big cast. They're doing a lot. It's a big story. And 
I still get the feel of every single character. Nobody gets lost. Everybody is firing on all cylinders. They're raising each other up. When they're working in pairs, they're fantastic. When they're working in groups, they're fantastic. When they're working solo, they're fantastic. It just, for me, it was a no-brainer. Ken Porsche wins this one. So, it was a little bit more difficult for me because I felt very strongly about the Game Boys 2 cast, but I know you I did. I had to concede to the the totality of what the Ken Porsche cast did. Because, as you said, all the issues with the reproduction, the sheer size of the cast, and the amount of batshittery in the story, it stood out to me, and that's why they get a plate. We're moving now into some more fine-grained stuff, so we're looking at best acting pair. So we selected, of the we proposed a, quite a few people, but when it came time for us to nominate three, we selected Omen Nanon, First and Gawain, Park Seoham and Park J. Chan, Elijah Kenless and Kokoi DeSantos, and then finally Boy and Todd. Mm-hmm. When I'm choosing the best acting pair, I'm asking how effectively do they work together across a wide emotional gamut? Some actors are going to do really well in comedic scenes together or in romantic scenes or dramatic scenes. And the question for me when I'm thinking about the best pair is who consistently maintains a high level of believability, even as they're moving across the narrative and across a variety of scenes, particularly because in most cases, some of the stuff is shot out of order. How well do they seem to know what they need to do in that exact moment? And so I chose Park Seoham and Park J. Chan because as two idols, there were a lot of other things going on in the background that affect how they will be perceived for being part of this. Mm-hmm. And they fully commit to the dynamic that they have to play between their characters. And there's a really believable segue from enemies to colleagues to maybe something different that doesn't feel forced in a way that it could have with such a short runtime. And it's hard to overstate how surprising their performance is, particularly after Light on Me, which I think is really good But I don't think the cast romantic chemistry really lands consistently in that. I think everyone's very friendly and there are really standout interactions and performances. And I'm a huge proponent of light on me. But Park Mm -hmm. Seo-Him and Park J-Chan did not, I think, need to do what they did to be successful. And there's a reason why a year later people are still talking about semantic error. For Elijah and Kokoi, I mean... I mean, what else can you say? I'm shouting at my TV. I want to believe when I see these two on screen together. And Mm -hmm. it's it's really easy for, I think, Kokoi to just play Gav as hyper-cheerful and bubbly. But there's a lot of layers to Gav. Gav is incredibly lonely and really struggling with a lot of grief and externalized homophobia in his own family. And Kokoi captures the desperation of the way Gav tries to be good to the people around him, even as he's struggling, 
in a way that plays off very sympathetically with Elijah's tendency towards Cairo's brattiness. And I think it's really notable how well Elijah plays Cairo's heart, but also kind of his naivete because Cairo's kind of sheltered and doesn't really know a whole lot. And there's a great deal of emotional narrative and thematic terrain that those two have to navigate together. And they never feel like they're out of step with each other along. And they did that first remotely. And then when they finally get together in Game Boys 2, it feels so different because they're together. But you also feel like they really tapped into something special there. Like This is still really early in their careers. But man, what a way to start for some of them. I mean, finally, <laughs> I guess I'll talk about Boy and Todd. We talked about their their scene earlier, mm-hmm. and it mostly comes down to that. But I really like the way that they played up their initial attraction to each other. That felt super believable in the first or second episode when they start interacting. And there's an easiness to the way that they interacted, which made them feel like one of the most gay pair of boys we've had over the last year. It didn't feel very forced and it felt really unique. We already talked about their other things. I don't want to go on about that too long, but I can't overstate how believable of a pair they were. My first choice was Oma Nanon because when I tell you that Bad Buddy burned a hole in my brain, and so much of that was about how much Oma Nanon brought to the story because the story is already very good. The way that they build up this family feud, the way that they build up this lifelong competition, the way that they build up how it has damaged both Pat and Pran, and the way that it made them turn to each other. The way that Oma Nanon built that up, that you feel that sense of history between Pat and Pran and that sense of the stress that they've been under their entire lives. They're doing it individually, but then when they come together in a scene and they're interacting in a scene, you feel their tentativeness with each other, but also the fact that I'm not supposed to like you, but still you're the closest thing I have to a best friend in this entire world because nobody knows me like you do. There's so much of that in there and it's really like the writing is some of it, but it wouldn't have been believable if Oma Nanon did not bring what they brought to the table. So I I definitely had Oma Nanon on my list. The second acting pair that I had on my list were First and Gowen and that is uh, Yuck and Dan in Not Me. 95% of the strength of that scene where Yuck draws Dan, it's, it's visceral, it's powerful. It made me sit up and take notice. Just the way at first that Yuck is very teasing with Dan, telling him, if you don't take the pillow away, I'm going to assume that you're here for something else, not just to be drawn. And then Dan's spilling out as Yoke is drawing him just unburdening himself and where that led them to inside of the scene I'm feeling everything that they're feeling and that really pulled me toward them as a couple pulled me toward them as a pair because 
that came from somewhere deep inside their interaction, not just within themselves, but within the way that they were interacting with each other as a pair. So that is why I picked them. But in the end, I had to agree with Ben. Best acting pair, hands down, of 2022 had to be Elijah Canlas and Cocoy de Santos. And Ben explained it far better than I can with regard to this because my reaction to Gavin and Kai is so visceral. It's, they feel lived in. Elijah is Kai. Kokoi is Gav. Usually there's a little bit of an uncanny valley. There's a little bit of a shield between you being aware that this is an actor you're watching playing a character and you being really drawn into the character and losing that film over the whole thing. And Elijah and Kokoi did that to me, especially in Game Boys 2, the way that I haven't seen from anybody else, not even some of the performances that I, I really enjoyed and I nominated for this. Elijah and Kokoi have something really special in terms of how they act together. And that, I've seen both that, of them in other roles. And yeah, I've seen Elijah in up, I think about five distinct roles and I never feel like mm-hmm. he's repeating in mm-hmm. these roles. And I've seen Kokoi and Elijah in another project they did together. And the vibe is mm-hmm. very there's something no disrespect about... to Omen Nanon or First and Gawain. You both, uh-huh. you four did an incredible job this year too. There are other people on this list we didn't mention, but some good names too. If you had to pick too. one pair, it has to be these two. It's magic. When you put the two of them together in these characters and put them on the screen, they are magic. Congratulations to Elijah Kenlas and Kokoi DeSantos. Here is your plate. And I can't <laughs> wait to see what you two do next year. Our final acting award, yes, our final acting award for 2022 is the best actor of the year. And again, we both nominated different groups of people, but we only agreed on one. And this is a different I, one. I think before we read off even the names, let's talk uh-huh. about what we're looking for in best actor. How about you oh go first? What are you looking for? I am looking for somebody to take me into the character's psyche. I'm looking for them to show me a truth about the character that maybe isn't exactly on the page, but they find within themselves as they act the character. I'm looking for nuances that come from deep, deep, deep understanding and delving into the character. I'm looking for excellence. I'm looking for submerging of the ego. I'm looking for disappearing into the character. My choices, my nominees were Nanon Kurapat as Pran in Bad Buddy. When I talk about disappearing into a character, my God. Nanon became Pran. Nanon was gone. Nanon disappeared. He was not there anymore. Nanon was not home. What was there was Pran. And that scene where Pran breaks down after he has the fight with his mother, just that whole episode, there's just one thing after the other when Pat's dad finds them and he pushes him and then he pushes Pat away to go and talk to his dad and then he goes back home and has the fight with his mom and then he's on the rooftop when Pat comes to find it. That whole sequence is just 
You know, they filmed both of the rooftop scenes the same night. I know. And the emotional difference, the emotional color between the two is just how do you go from one of those things to the other of those things in the same night? It's just magic, absolute magic. So Nonon was the first nominee that I had. My second nominee was First Canapan as Ak in the eclipse. What drew me into Ak was the fear that he had. It was palpable. I'm looking at the first episode or first two episodes of the eclipse and I'm watching what I called Gestapo Ak, which is him really being the rule stickler, the heavy. And I'm looking at this kid and I'm looking at him reacting to Ayan coming into his orbit and just totally shattering his psyche without even trying. And I'm just like, oh my God, this poor baby. He does not know how the hell he is going to survive this because we find out later that Ak has had crushes before, but that Ak is so deeply internalized, so deeply closeted, he can't even admit the way he feels to himself. And I think first performance sort of, really stands out because Yak was. It so really different. does. Ak is, Ak, is a diff- Ak is a very different character from the characters I've seen first play before. I think that's really what is special about First for me. He's played in about 11 different roles now. And mm-hmm. we talk about actors growing between roles, and that really just has to do with how much more believable they are. First mm-hmm. keeps getting better, but what stands out for me is how specific all of First performances have been. When and we talked we talk about, about this with the Moonlight, when we talked about the Moonlight Chicken trailer, not to, to delve off topic, but I mean, all you, or not the trailer, the special, all you mm-hmm. see is first walk across the lobby. Right. And, and we you were immediately both screaming. get who his character is. <laughs> <laughs> He's really, really good. And we got a lot of things to talk about. We'll talk about first we, a lot in we, the coming we'll, years. We'll, we will talk about him a lot because he's in quite a bit. My other two picks were. Elijah Kenlas and Sun Wuhyun. I already talked about Elijah with Kokoi. Mm-hmm. But individually, Elijah's good enough that he could have carried the entirety of Game Boys on the strength of his performance alone. Mm-hmm. It's really good that the rest of the cast was able to keep up with him. But even if they couldn't, we would still be talking about Game Boys because of Elijah alone. And that's kind of what I look for when I'm talking about best actor. The question for me is, how strong is their performance that you just can't envision anyone else doing this? So Elijah stands out for that for Cairo. And then Sun Wuhyun stands out for... Kang Sejun. Here's the thing. Like, there's a lot of people who did not enjoy To My Star 2, Our Untold Stories. I loved it. I also loved it. I'm a melancholy person. But here's the thing. like To really delve into that deep level of melancholy takes an incredibly talented actor to keep the audience from losing hope along the way. And Sun Wuhyun plays his optimism in a way that feels really attainable because you can tell that he's holding on for dear life because he knows he'll break Mm -hmm. if he lets go. 
And so mm-hmm. it's really important that when his character does actually give up around episode seven, mm-hmm. it hurts so much because you can feel how hard he worked to not give up before that. And I just mm-hmm. don't think that a sequel romance story that puts the characters through a lot of pain that I said was not done at the end of the first one. That's that's my big disagreement with other with other takes. I just mm-hmm. don't think anyone else carries that. I think the two of them are a really special pair as well, but I don't think that worked without Sun Hyun's performance at all. I always talk about Into My Star, the original To My Star, how he is covering up his melancholy, his paranoia, all of these things with the sunshine attitude and how clear that is in the acting, even before you know anything about him. And into my star too, he took that and ran with it. It was amazing. It's really interesting. Like he and Kokoi DeSantos are basically doing the same basic role in their stories. The real changeover is that we spend more time with Sun Hyun. And so we have mm-hmm. to we have to believe that a lot harder. We have to believe what it is about him that would carry him through a year without seeing <laughs> The person who walked out on him on his birthday and left a note. And why he would still be looking for him a year later. You had to believe that. And, and when they get back together, all of those scenes are really difficult. Yeah. When he yeah. finally breaks and his frustration comes out. It isn't... He could have played it as sad and mopey. But there, mm-hmm. was, there was a specific was form of outrage yes. he tapped into yes. there. That really landed and you never forget that he's an actor playing an actor and he does an incredible job of it it's not easy but the I one mean, nominee for... yes that we both agreed on let's talk about him was saying which i and actually as about to say for both roles so saying which i playing toe in or as I call him, Toge to function on Secret <laughs> in Secret Crush on You. And then playing Pan in War of Why, which is a show that we both gave up on. But that first arc, New Ship, with Seng Wishai playing Pan, gripping, riveting. He elevated that entire first arc of War of Why. And then what he did with Toe in Secret Crush on You, because Toe is a very hard character to like. When we meet Toe, he is stalking Niwa. He is deluded. He is in this fantasy realm that he refuses to jump out of, no matter how much his friends are gently trying to tell him, this is not okay. This is creepy. This is not good for you. His friends are gently trying to get him out of it. And you don't know where this comes from. And then as the series goes on, you start to see where this obsessiveness, where this obsession with Noah comes from. And it doesn't have anything to do with Noah. It has to do with Toe and how Toe feels about himself. And as they go on and go on, it starts to get even deeper where you realize that part of the problem as well is how for all that Toe is, and for this I will use the term that even though it's not quite correct, visibly queer, because he's femme, Secret Crush on You is a story about femmes, um, he's not out. And 
it affects everything he does, everything he feels about himself. And you see that in the way that Seng plays the character. I was gobsmacked. Best actor of 2022, hands down. And Ben and I agreed on this. It stood out for me because the question, I said this with Elijah, that Game Boys 2 would have been good if everyone else wasn't. And that's how I feel about Secret Crush on you. Seng is so compelling in Secret Crush on You and War of Why New Ship that you can't look away. And I feel like the special quality that Seng taps into is he can play ugly really well. His character in War of Why is this sweaty, desperate mess. And somehow and you just can't keep your eyes off of him. Toe is also kind of a mess. And what's interesting yeah. is like Sang is actually an incredibly attractive person. But he, he is. In both shows, he he plays his characters in a way that is kind of unattractive. And mm-hmm. it's really hard to do that really well. A lot of actors ride on the strength of their smiley charm alone. But Sang can't for both of the roles he's in. Because he actually has to play his own charm as kind of twisted and weird with the way he has to smile as both characters. Mm. And that's one of the major things that stood out for me and why I put him above an incredibly difficult year. There are people we didn't even mention who are on this list yeah. who oh, yeah. any other year would have probably won. But 2022 yep. was a really special year in genre. Sang took it for me. I think you and I talked about the last sex scene of Seng and Billy's arc in War of Why, and how I had to look away. It was so... I I was worried that there was something actually happening on that set. That was intense. Up against the mirror, that was really intense. (laughs) Seng wish I in that new ship arc. Add that tuto. Either one of those roles alone would have gotten him the best actor of the year. Together, blows everybody else out of the water. That was basically it when we were having a conversation. I was like, Sing carried two shows. Everybody else carried one. Yep. Basically, <laughs> so he wins. <laughs> so congratulations <laughs> to Sang Wishai for winning the 2022 Vibe Award for Best Actor. Your plate is in the mail. a new category now we're gonna talk about ships so this is gonna be a little bit different because before we were mostly talking about the strength of performance and so we were talking about the skill of the people involved at this point we're going to be talking more about the collective character dynamics that are a result of the work so this is a mix really of us looking at the writing for a couple, the acting for a couple, what the production design for the couple is telling us about how they work together, their chemistry. These are the kinds of things that I was looking at. I don't know if you had anything in addition to that. This particular section is a little bit different from the last one because when it comes to really strong performances, they're strong enough that people pick up on it from small bits that manage to make gifts on Tumblr and such. And so Nini and I had basically seen everything that we agreed upon in this. 
The ship awards are a little bit different because I've seen a whole lot more than Nini. Mm -hmm. So there's going to be a lot of commentary about the side of BL that Nini doesn't have time or attention for. So this section is going to be a little bit different. So we're starting with best ghost ship. For us, a ghost (laughs) ship is one that is not, say, officially sanctioned, per se, by the show, but is one that you're like, maybe, though. Mm-hmm. Maybe. Hold on. I got something to say about that. So we selected quite a few, but I ended up nominating Todd and Black for Not Me, for all the reasons we discussed earlier. Vegas and Porsche from Ken Porsche. And then Minato and Hanabusa from Minato's Laundromat. We've already talked about how Todd and Black want to fuck each other so much that it makes them look stupid. So and you're much. gonna have a lot to say about Vegas and Porsche, and I'll let you cover that because you're way more into that one than I am. But uh, the thing yeah. that stands out for me about a ghost ship, I think, and what what draws me to it is how does the presence of that ghost ship impact the narrative overall or influence how things unfold? So the tension between Todd and Black is the source of all of the drama. Mm-hmm. In Not me. All of this stuff Mm -hmm. wouldn't happen if Black didn't turn radical and Todd didn't get pissed that he lost his friend along the way. With Vegas and Porsche, the potential for Porsche to choose Vegas creates all sorts of problems with Ken and conflates the ongoing rivalry between the two halves of the family already. And there was a real belief I had at one point that Porsche could choose Vegas. And then finally, Minato's Laundromat is a show about a graduating high school senior who has been harboring a 10-year crush on the now owner of the local family-run laundromat. The owner is Minato, and Hanabusa is one of the other local kids who's also graduating at the same time, but he consistently flirts with Minato just to piss Shin off. And it's so convincing that I was allowing myself to become delusional about it just because I thought it was fun to see how it complicated (laughs) things. So those are the three I ended up selecting primarily, like I said, about how much their ghost ship impacts the sort of primary ships or the other themes of the ship. I I agree with what you said about the fact that the Todd Black ghost ship is actually the impetus for the entire Not Me story. And that's the, one of the reasons that I picked it as well. It should have happened. It like happened, way. I, I'm, I'm pretty sure it happened. I, I feel like a lot of the way I feel about ghost ships is that, oh, this is something that I really wish that they had put in there because it would have put a nice little complicated wrinkle in the story chemistry was there Todd and Black for me stood out as definitely oh god they should have showed that to us the second one I picked I also picked Vegas Porsche I picked Vegas Porsche because Porsche is Helen of Troy right I'm not the only person who got that out of that's a really great way to describe his role Porsche is Helen of Troy Porsche is somehow the face that launched a thousand ships although he's not really there's a little bit of pulling and tugging over Porsche himself, but also what Porsche represents, which is his mom, which is the pulling and tugging from the previous generation was over his mother, over Nampung. 
I enjoy the dynamic of Vegas Porsche as well because I also didn't know if Vegas was trying to play Porsche or if he was seriously interested because it's not quite clear. I liked that. I liked not being 100% certain of whether Vegas was really into Porsche or whether he was just playing him. And that came up for me in two scenes. It came up for me in the scene where after everything happens with Ken and Porsche in episode four, that Vegas comes and meets Porsche at Yoke's bar and takes him out for a ride on his motorcycle. And that whole, the ride on the motorcycle, the romantic music, I'm not above being swayed by music, just the general behavior, the interaction between Vegas and Porsche in that scene and how flirty Porsche was. And he was feeling a vibe and I feel like Vegas was also feeling that vibe too. I don't think it was fake in that moment. And then in episode seven, where it's a little clearer cut that maybe Vegas is trying to use Porsche, although again, I don't think it's a hundred percent clear cut and he tries to kiss him in the bathroom. At that point, you feel like Porsche is not interested in this anymore. He's not flirting. He's not whatever. But I get the sense that Vegas hasn't quite picked up. He still thinks that maybe he has a chance. And again, it's a little bit more iffy as to whether he's seriously into Porsche or whether he's just playing him. And again, that might just be my interpretation, but I always felt that Vegas had a little bit of a soft spot for Porsche. That's why they were also on my Go Ship nominees list. And then my third one was really just well a, for Vegas yeah. because of how deeply unwell he is. Oh, he yeah. probably does like Porsche, but he likes Porsche the only way he can as a way to bother Ken. Because that's the only thing he's been allowed to care about. That goes back to Vegas as a character, man. We don't Thank have you. a best character award, but if we did, we, we chose we not don't to have do a best, best character, character. <laughs> because it would just have been too hard. It would have been way too hard to just oh, pick one. They we had get such into an horrible fight. We would have just had an embarrassment of riches. We would have had to basically give out 20 best character awards. So we just decided not to. My third pick for Ghost Ship, and this was just because it was so cute. There's not even a hint of it on screen, but I was just so attached to the that's idea. Why I, that's why I was waiting <laughs> for you to talk about this. Because when you put this on the list and then put your mark value, I was like, you were like are they what? even on screen together ever? They're never on screen together. <laughs> but I feel like it could have been a contender. And that is Jay and Foy from Cutie Pie. Now I know in the end, it turns out that Foy gets since kind of a head thing with Hiei's secretary. But, but, Foy is such a ridiculous character and Jay is so not. I would have loved to see them interact in any way, but especially Jay meeting Foy and being like, you are ridiculous. You have to come home with me. This is the first <laughs> one you put on here that I was like, I'm not with you, sis. And I need you to explain this one to me. I have been waiting like a week and a half to hear her explanation for this because I, I saw this on the list and I was like, whatever. I just need to hear her talk this one through. <laughs> but yeah, that's it for me. Like I said, there's no basis for it whatsoever in canon. It is a total ghost ship, a total crack ship. 
if I were a fan fiction girl, this would be the fan fiction I would write. I love a serious character and a ridiculous character together. I adore it so much. I would have loved to see these two. So that's why they were my third pick. In the end, the best ghost ship is... Todd and Black from Not Me. Congratulations Yay. to Sing Harrod and Gun Adafon for bringing together such a compelling dynamic. If y'all ever want to make a Not Me too and make that canon, I will be watching. <laughs> and not just for the sparks either, because the sparks were there, but just the dynamics are so juicy. These are people who have been friends their entire lives and had a serious fracture. And they hate each other, but they love each other. I love it. I, I want to see We don't so often get that. dynamics that complicated in BLs. That's off to I... the entire cast and crew for making that work. Nochi, if you ever listen to this, please make Not Me Too. Our Moving next into category our... is yes, our... Best OT3. This best is when I'm letting OT. Nini Lee, because I don't normally do OT3s. So I only brought forth options that I think were really supported by canon this year. We only ended up with three recommendations. So before we get into uh, who won, we'll just give you the three we had. It was the yep. obviously Jungwoo, Chaco, and Milk trio from Chaco Milkshake. So delightful. It was Pat, Pran, and Corn from Bad Buddy. And then it was Junghyun, Young, and Jungwoo from Happy Ending Romance. Full disclosure, I've only seen two of these. I have not seen Happy Ending Romance, so I can't speak to that. But Pat Pran and Corn in Bad Buddy comes solely and entirely off that scene in episode nine before Pat gets shot. I had to bring it up. Sorry, I just did. I always Where... forget that Pat got shot until you bring it up. Like, I'll just be existing in my world. And I'll be like, wow, Bad Buddy really is good. And then you'll be like, it's lots of paper across the desk. Pat got shot. <laughs> so ridiculous the scene after the rugby match when pat and pran are having their little cute time and pat is kind of like well maybe i'll just stay home and make out with you instead and corn comes banging on the door and he comes in to get pat to go out for this victory celebration and the way he was looking at them and the way that he was kind of like there we all you know and then the little hand motion he did just he's so nosy i'm convinced that he wants in on that action and i do not blame him the I reason mean, why I me. also let it ride was you get the sense that Pran is very protective of his space. In the show, only two people actually enter his bedroom. It's mm-hmm. home and corn. Mm-hmm. Even Y never enters his room. His friends hang out in his living room. But you get mm-hmm. the sense that in the time from all their flirting in episode seven and eight, that Corn stood out amongst all the people they know as someone that Pran also started to really trust. He lets him into their space. He lets Corn see them inside of a space that might just be reserved for them. So that whole idea playing with what we're allowed to see and what we're not allowed to see in Bad Buddy, what's for our consumption and what's just for Pat and Pran. And the fact that you're right, Corn is the only person other than pat that he allows into that very private space of his it feels like something and then after they were outed 
I will never forgive why. Corn was the first person to mm. kind of be like, I'm on your side. Don't worry about it. Everybody's going to come around. And then he started immediately giving Pat shit. And I loved, I love a best friend who gives you shit about everything. He gave Pat immediate shit. Like, where's your, where's your boyfriend? How is your boyfriend? Y'all did it yet? He mentions it more than once. He is so interested in their sex life and what they are doing. <laughs> I am convinced that he wants to be part of it. And I, I would like to see it. So that's why I picked that for OT3. Do you want to talk about Happy Ending Romance? Because I haven't watched it. Or do you want to just... Yeah, so Happy Ending Romance is a really K-drama-esque BL from, obviously, Korea. So in this one, you have a bunch of adults who are all connected around uh, book publishing. Basically, this up-and-coming hotshot really talented writer ends up causing a kerfuffle in the industry by revealing some shady practices by one of the best-selling authors of the era. And he gets blacklisted, but ends up being sheltered by another writer who becomes, he ends up living with him as a boyfriend. And this other guy who was a publisher who worked for the publisher at the time left his position in protest and opened up his own publishing company. And then randomly runs into this act, this other writer who he's who's writing he's loved for so long, and he ends up working so hard to reunite with him. And the reason it put, it ends up on this particular list is the through all the drama that gets resolved, the final shot is of the three of them on the roof together. In a way that indicates that these two are a couple, but sometimes he still shows up. And <laughs> it's one of the few that really feels like Canon was saying it could happen, which was kind of similar to Choco Milkshake, but they couldn't have creating separate pairs in that one. So I ended up being like, well, I mean, yes, but they pair milk with uncle. So. To me, when you have anything that looks like a triangle, the answer is pretty much always Polly. But I really enjoyed the Jungwoo, Choco, and Milk dynamic, especially at the beginning before Uncle enters the picture for Milk. This idea of them both loving Jungwoo so much, and not just loving Jungwoo, but loving each other enough to make the journey together to Jungwoo, which is something I don't see talked about a lot in the Choco Milkshake dynamic. They, they make do give off an incredibly specific together. sibling dynamic. Yes, and it's so they love Jungwoo, they love each other. It's the perfect OT3 for me, and that's why it was, in the end, the it best OT3. Like, it feels like they were watching, like, Homeward Bound, The Incredible Journey, and they were like, Oh my no. god. <laughs> <laughs> you make me feel old sometimes, Ben. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's not like I reference, like, we can't talk about that movie. Too many animals. Got <laughs> oh my god! <laughs> I hate you so much. But <laughs> yeah, no. So like for me, it was just the sense of the fact that they all love each other, and that maybe were it not for Uncle, it could have been an OT three. To me, so. that makes it the best OT three of the year. So the. I 2022 Vibe Award for Best OT3 goes to Jungwoo, Choco, and Milk from Choco Milkshake. 
so our next it's a strong berry because yes oh my god i think they would appreciate it actually like i think if we actually reached out to Strongberry and been like here you won a very important internet bl award here's a plate they would actually maybe make a video about it <laughs> they probably would they're so they're so really, they're so, they're so kind of people i really love yeah them. we're not yeah, talking about production houses specifically but i really uh-huh. love what strongberry has done for a very long time I agree. They they love the fans and it shows. Our next ship is Friendship. And uh, this was so hard because there were so many great friendships and friend groups on screen this last year. I'll talk a little bit about my nominees. So I nominated from Ken Porsche, Porsche and Jayoke. I nominated Kua and Diao from Cutie Pie. And I nominated... To Zhao, Daisy, and Som from Secret Crush on You. Now, Portion Yoke, you could call that a friendship. You can call that a mother-son relationship. You can call it whatever they want. But it's clear that those two are right or die for each other. Like a true like, queer relationship, it is. Common. Yes, the bisexual and the house mother. It's beautiful to watch. Anytime Porsche needs advice, particularly about romance and about falling in love, he turns to Yoke when he finally is open with being with Ken. The place that they go to is they go to Jay Oak's bar. And when he wants to go to a place, when he wants to take Tankun to a place that he feels is safe, he takes him to Jay Oak's bar. And just the dynamic between the two of them is so lovely. I feel like they truly love each other. He trusted Yoke with his baby brother to protect him. I love them. I love them so much. Uh, the second one I nominated was Ke and Diao from Cutie Pie. And that that's because they felt so lived in and real and modern as a friendship for me. They just, they felt like modern two friends. Modern is a very good term for them, I think. The scene where Ke and Diao on the phone and Diao asked, oh my God, was it a nail and bail talking about? <laughs> talking about <laughs> Ke and Lian having sexy times. And I nearly died it was so perfect they felt like real friends they talk about their lives they talk about their loves they make inappropriate jokes that they couldn't make with anybody else it felt so real and lived in as a friendship i loved it so much it was it for me who are you two runners up i i think before we i talk about them i'll talk about why i think friendship is really important in romance and why we made sure to include it as a category the big thing about romance is it's about people's ability to form strong and meaningful connections with other people and Mm -hmm. it's difficult to appreciate a character falling in love when they don't have people who care about them or that they care about it's why i think so many villains are really compelling like yzma and kronk are a great example of they wouldn't work if they didn't have this weird twisted relationship with each other and with the two I nominated as runners-up, it was Gavin Pearl from Game Boys first because they were best friends, then lovers, now back to best friends. And Pearl is always there to help Gav. And she asks for really so little in return other than to just be acknowledged and hugged by the boys whenever she does something for them. and. It's not easy to dial your relationship back with someone 
and genuinely root for them to fall for someone else. And Adriana does that in such a believable way. I also nominated Nukua and Kondiao for the same reasons you did. Their particular friendship feels like a gay friendship because you get the real sense that if they both weren't absolutely sprung for Lian or Yi, something maybe could have developed between them, but instead mm. they became basically sisters to each other. And I just really love seeing that in genre because we don't often get friendships that feel queer, which I think is especially mm. important for Cutie Pie because you were and I were talking about this earlier, how hard Cutie Pie leans into certain traditional aesthetics with the way they do stuff. That the fact that the Kondiao and Nukua friendship feels so queer, I think helps keep that show from feeling from skewing too hard one way or the other. So in- our winner, who we will talk about at length probably, is <laughs> the quartet from Secret Crush on You of To, Kao Jiao, Daisy, and Song. I'll <gasps> let you go first. We never get stories about femmes. Femmes are always the side characters or pushing everybody else into their romances and rooting for them. And not only do we get here a group of femmes and a woman, well, and two women, one cis woman, one trans woman. And I want to speak specifically about Daisy because I think that Daisy is a breakthrough character for Tybiel. I think that the way that Daisy is created as a character, the way that she interacts with her friends, the way that she interacts with In Touch when In Touch starts flirting with her, everything about her. And then that heartbreaking arc where she tries to butch up to be seen as a man when that's not who she is. And her friends are there and try to be supportive but they see how miserable it's making her that whole arc solidified the entire friendship group for me not that it wasn't solid before but how well they know daisy and how they know where this desire to be seen as more manly in that moment is coming from and the fact that they give it room to develop for her until it's clear that it's hurting her they and do. The they really let that clear, ride for like two or three episodes. Yeah, I was really exactly. impressed with how long they let that go and how visibly uncomfortable the friends were along the way. I was yeah. sold on the four of them, I think from like episode one or two, with their whole saying, three equals four, so you're coming with us. <laughs> that was nice. That was really like, good. <laughs> that feels like a gay friend group if I've ever seen one. Mm-hmm. Um, you can't bail, Kajal. You're coming with us. Uh, I, I, I just really the, love the way they care for each other. They're just so special. Like, yeah, there's a lot of great friend groups in BL. Like, we're gonna, there's always gonna be like Parm, Manal, and Team. These four are very special. It's really part are. of why I ended up giving. I argued for Singh as best actor. Honestly, is in the I think it's episode number eleven where they have that confrontation with Daisy about what's mm. going on. Sang, who could otherwise dominate a scene, dials back his performance so as not to distract. 
like that whole scene works so well because it doesn't feel like it's just Daisy and Som talking to each other while Kao Zhao and Sing look and Kao Zhao and To look sad off to the side. It mm-hmm. felt like the four of them were together and the other two boys stepped back to let Som speak to Daisy as a woman. Yeah, woman and to woman. made space for that. Just incredible. To, to the Just... folks at Idol Factory, very good job on that one. Idol Factory's <laughs> killing the game when it comes to queering BL. And that sounds Absolutely. like that seems like a weird Absolutely phrase incredible. to say, but but it, it they, they are incredible from all all four of them. Just yeah, it's outstanding just, it, set of performances. There's for no a question. Long series, honestly, really, yeah. really great job. And just like little things too, like them on the night out, them in the French maid outfits. <laughs> These are people Cal who running genuinely... to bring his own box of shit he's hoarded from his interactions yes, with Sky. With Sky. <laughs> they just they love each other. They have fun together. They are there for each other through thick and thin. They give each other shit. They yell at each other when they need yelling at. They feel like real friends. That's amazing. Let's say no. We're sending a play to Idol Factory. We are sending a play to Idol Factory without a doubt. So our best friendship of Vibe Award for 2022 goes out to To, Kaujao, Daisy, and Som from Secret Crush on You. Congratulations to them and to Idol Factory. Yay! Saint, you're getting a plate. It's in the mail. Now we come to the Battle Royale, the head-to-head where Ben and I are going to duke it out because we could not agree on anything in this category. And that is best side ship. <laughs> now, we have I'm g- <laughs> zero disagreement. Our basic model for this was we threw up some nominations for people who we think did a good job in each category. And then we each marked the three that we thought did a great job. And then where we both agreed, we were like, okay, that's just going to be the winner to keep it simple. We had multiple agreement. We had a small discussion, and we would, and then we we're like, "All right, we'll save the rest of this for the, the, the recording." We have zero agreement at all about best no. side ship. No, and as Ben said, when we started, we thought about whether we should discuss it before or save it for on air, and we agreed to save it for on air. And one of the reasons was that Ben and I, I think, have two very different metrics for looking at side ships. Two very different ways of viewing them and that's why we each picked who we picked ben i'm gonna allow you to go first who are your three nominees for best side ship i okay. selected for best side ship sky and kyle Zhao from secret crush on you yak and dan from not me and khan and tua from the eclipse i selected Ink and Pa from Bad Buddy, Kim and Shay from Kin Porsche, and Sin and Newer from Cutie Pie. I'm going to cede the floor. You have won the coin toss. Go ahead. I think I'll just talk first. (laughs) I'll talk first about what I want out of a side ship. For me, a, a side ship should not distract from the main ship or the main couple. They need to feel as if they are adding a level of nuance to the themes being described in the show itself. The side shift from Golden Blood ended up outclassing 
what was going on with the main ship, and which distracts because that's not even like a bodyguard adjacent pairing of any sort. I selected Kao Jiao, Kanatua, and Yak and Dan because of how they contribute to the primary themes being explored in the work they're in, as opposed to any other metrics that I think stand out. Uh, what were the the primary criteria for you for your side ships? So I think it's well established that I am not a fan of side couples in general. For me, a side couple has to be such that if they wrote the main story about the side couple, it would still work for me. So if they flipped main ship and side ship, I would still want to watch the story. And that's my that's really main criterion. That is my main criterion for side ships. If they are interesting enough to hold me, even without the main ship, if they are driving story themselves, if they're deeply integrated into the story in such a way that you could really flip it and it wouldn't lose anything, that's what does it for me. So yeah, I think that makes total sense. And that's why we probably didn't, that's why we selected different things. Of the ones that I picked. For all that they had barely any screen time, Kim and Shay goes to number one with a bullet for me because <laughs> Kim Lock Holmes and poor Shay will go to the top of the list for me because whatever Kim has going on is obviously deeply integrated into the story. And one of the reasons that I... I'm really convinced that we're getting a second series of Ken Porsche is that the story ended in the middle as far as I'm concerned, because we don't know what's actually happening with Kim and with Kim and Porsche. So the fact that the other stories seem to be tied up with a little bow, that didn't matter to me. It still felt unfinished because there is obviously something going on with Kim. My favorite dynamic in a couple i've said is junkyard dog and the only person allowed to pet them so kim and jay is absolute top of my list here from the minute shay walks into his life he is fighting a losing battle eventually he just gives up and accepts that shay utterly owns him he will do literally anything he will kill he will maim he will cover himself in blood to protect Shay. And Shay is the only thing that he cares about. He doesn't even, I don't even think he even cares about his family as much as he cares about Shay. For me, that is the best side ship of 2022 of all the ones that I picked. I also picked, as I said, Ink Pa from Bad Buddy. I think why is obvious. I think they're delightful. I think they're delectable. I think that the way that they fell in love is so real. My lesbian friends have demonstrated this to me time and time again, where it's kind of like, I like her, but do I like her like her? And they spend all this time and I'm just sitting on the sidelines like, girl, you're in love. Why Why are we still talking about this? They're like, worry about this. Like, I don't know. Like, I think maybe she was into me, but it was so real for me. And I loved it. I loved that they could have flipped again. As much as I love Pat and Pran, as much as I love the main story of Bad Buddy, if they had flipped it and given me Pat and Pran as a side couple and Ink and Pa as the main couple, I think I would have still watched. So that said a lot to me. And then Sin and Nur, I mean, come on, they're just adorable. 
sin this very religious very innocent boy suddenly just getting hot under the collar for this hottie who just walks into his class and he just doesn't know what to do with it this kid is flirting with him he's just like oh i like at first he's, he's mostly protective of his friend because he yeah. knows Nikola and leon are it for each other when the attention shifts and newer notices sin and then from that moment on that's it from for him sin is so coy and sweet and that's not usually the type of character that i'm into but it works for this and newer is so naughty the way that he talks to sin it's very respectful but it's also very he, he toes flirty, the line very piety. he wants to wreck that boy <laughs> and sin knows it as well and he's just kind of like oh i well i kind of want to be wrecked but then again i am also a bride of buddha it's so it's really fascinating listening it's fascinating listening to your explanation for what you like out of side ships because i feel like it's not the way i appreciate them at all because mm-hmm. i don't i wouldn't want the series to be flipped like the the star-crossed thing with Pat and Pran doesn't play out with Ink and Pa that way. I like Ink and no. Pa in that particular story because their gentle falling for each other underscores that homophobia is not the problem in this story. Because Pat's parents don't have a problem with mm-hmm. Ink at all. It's just that particular boy is mm-hmm. the problem. For Sin and Nur, Cutie Pie is so much about this arranged marriage you have a responsibility to this person dynamic that Sin and Nur, as fun as they are, they just don't feel like they play into that particular set of circumstances or the age gap thing either because they're actually the same age, which I guess allows them as a point of comparison relative to the mains. And then for Kim and Porsche, as much as I love Jeff and Barcode, they're in a completely different type of show from everyone else. They barely <laughs> interact with the rest of the cast over the course uh-huh. of the show. Exactly. Barcode, like Barcode's character Porsche is in like I got discovered by my idol romance. But think about it. If that was the story and then there's all this mafia shit happening in the background, wouldn't that just be delightful? I mean, it would be love in the air. (laughs) Fair enough. It would be love in the air. I kind of love that. So anyway, that's me. What about you? All right. So I first chose Sky and Cow Jow. Because in a show about femmes and fats and other undesirables being chosen as loved ones, I like that Sky and Nua are so determined when it comes to Toe and Cao Zhao. And in particular, I like their dynamic because it takes a lot for... Zhao to come around to it because he keeps thinking that he might be being toyed with or he's just going to get dumped and hurt. But once he does start to accept that he likes Sky, he becomes really possessive of him and starts mean mugging other characters, particularly (laughs) women in the series. A surprise makes such excellent faces. When they go on that run and that woman is clearly trying to strut for guy and he goes shoot (laughs) and so like what works really well for me with sky and kao jiao is that it helps reinforce how 
normal Nua wants to be seen. Because he and Sky are best friends, and they're both begging To and Kao Zhao to stop elevating them and putting mm-hmm. them on this level. The the desperation of we love you, we're not gods or other special people because we play basketball or people think we're especially attractive. We just want to be seen as guys who really like you. We don't want mm-hmm. you feeling like we're going to bail on you constantly. Their relationship helps reinforce how normal Nua wants his relationship with To to be. Because the same thing is kind of playing out twice. It helps reinforce that this shouldn't be spectacular. With Yak and Dan and not me, you have a series about radicals fighting against the system. And one of your more radical members ends up falling for a cop in this. A cop who is maybe struggling with his own role in the system. He creates protest art on the side, but he makes money selling NFTs. What a a character. (laughs) What a character. I mean, wow. But then again, not me is about the characters you meet in a leftist movement. Exactly. And so, like, that really stands out for me when you're talking about the role of Yak and Dan and say this story, they instantly complicate the narrative that it isn't easy to do us and them when you're focusing on systemic change, because it isn't easy. There are people who are going to end up serving as agents of the system because there just aren't a lot of great options. Otherwise that's part of how the systems maintain themselves. And what happens when radicals fall for these agents? What is the fallout of that? It would have been easy to just make them hate each other. But the fact that Yak becomes so insane for Dan really makes that work really well for me. And then finally, with Khan and Tua, Khan and Tua, I think, are necessary to make the Ion and Ak relationship function in the show. Because Ion is a gay boy from outside of the system of Supala. And so we have him falling for Ak and the complications that happen when somebody who has seen the outside world wants to show you what it actually looks like. We have as a necessary point of comparison, what gay boys inside of the system who care about each other look like with Khan and Tua. And I don't think it's possible to appreciate Ak and Ayan without the tension and desperation over small acts that Khan and Tua are riding the whole time. Like, Ayan is demanding so much more from Ak constantly. And here we see Khan and Tua basically surviving literally on scraps the -hmm. whole time. And that, for me, makes them my best side couple of the year. Because they're necessary to their particular story in a way that the Others almost aren't like we could have done. Like we have other options with Sky with Secret Crush on you because there's Daisy and In Touch. They could have been blown up more. But mm-hmm. I think specifically for what what the Eclipse wants to talk about with systemic homophobia, you need Khan and Tua in the conversation about Ak and Ayan and then the teacher's name I can't remember right now and Ayan's uncle. Without them playing their roles in the story. I think it makes Ayan exceedingly exceptional. 
I think they provide context that's necessary for Ion's exceptionalism. I like how your thought process works to count into a showing what it takes to be gay inside the system and still be able to try to at least be yourself and what it takes for that to happen because we see how hard it is for Khan and Tua to work their way towards each other they are clearly people who care about each other but Khan is going to slap away Tua's hand if he tries to touch him coming to the end where he kisses him out in the open and that doesn't happen without Ayan's role in their story either it doesn't. That's true. I feel like you're you're bringing me around on Khan and Tua. You're bringing me around. So if I would drop one of mine in order to also agree on Khan and Tua, I probably would drop maybe Sin and Newer as much as I enjoy them. I feel like a story about Sin and Newer doesn't say as much as the story about canon to us so i will i will lean into one of yours any one of mine that you're you're gonna lean into i think in terms of accepting your argument about flipping the story mm-hmm. and then being really interested in the side couple story as a result i would agree to drop because we basically see their story already and not mean there really isn't that much else to say i'll say we can drop Yak and Dan in favor of Kim and Porsche. Okay, climbing closer together. So then our two points of agreement and where we're going to choose between are Kim and Porsche versus Khan and Tua. And I think we've got pretty strong arguments for both of them. I will admit, though, that my Kim Porsche love is partly because I need to see what happens to them next, where I feel like Conan Tua's story is pretty well wrapped up within the series. But also, again, that dynamic, I just love that dynamic that basically Kim will bite off anybody's hand that comes near him except Porsche. But that's just my personal thing. So I'm conceding. I'm arguing that The Eclipse would be an absolutely insane show if we flipped it and focused entirely on the perspective of Tua watching all of this shit going down. I concede. Yes. So the winner of the best side ship 2022 vibe award is Khan and Tua from the eclipse. And Ben has convinced me. And let me tell y'all, congratulations to Neo and Louis. Congratulations to you, Ben, because it is very hard to convince me of anything. And you convinced me about this. So congratulations to you. You will also get a plate. Congratulations to them. And now... That was difficult. That was a hard one. That was a real hard one. I'm glad we agreed to duke it out on the podcast, though, because that was a lot of good choice. I think we would have done fine in text, but I I really enjoyed hearing you talk about what you enjoy in side chips. With all the stuff that we have coming up and all the side chips that are happening and stuff that's airing now that we're going to be talking about in the spring, I think I'm going to look at your way of looking at it a little bit more so you've changed my mind that doesn't often happen Thank you. i just watch <laughs> too many shows so the idea of flipping the show to watch it again we're seeing that right now with between us and we both have thoughts about that we'll save those for the spring show when between us is over and we can talk about it in full detail now for the main event of the night 
Best main ship. My three nominees for best main ship were Pat Pran from Bad Buddy. I don't think I need to explain this anymore. They were everything. They were the moment. They were life-giving. They were devastating. They were hilarious. They were fantastic. My second nominee is Toe Anur from Secret Crush on You because you don't expect their story when you start watching to go anywhere like where it went. And it was some really clever writing. It was some really beautiful acting. I really enjoyed it. So those are my runners up. Who are your runners up, Ben? This is a very difficult section for me because we said this in the pre-show, but I engaged with 92 productions this year. And Nini engaged with maybe like 20? I don't even know if it was 20. I have to actually count, but I think it was more like 15. Yeah, so 15, maybe 20. So I've seen a lot of dynamics, and I put a lot on this list, who unfortunately I will not have enough time to talk about here. My two runners up are Paiyu and Rain from Love in the Air, and then Plume and Kevin from Ghost House, Ghost House. So Paiyu and Rain... There is some worrisome consent stuff with them, but I just don't choose to focus on it because I've accepted some of the rules of Mame's world, having been engaged with enough of her work at this point. Mm-hmm. And so the reason why I end up liking Paiyu and Rain so much is particularly for Mame, there is no drama in their relationship. All of the factors that complicate their dynamic are entirely external. They are an incredibly straightforward example of two people who saw each other from afar, decided they liked each other, and then started pursuing each other. There are kink elements to them being like a lifestyle DS couple, but there's nothing dark about Paiyu. He can be a little stern, but he has a job that seems to be paying him well. He's loved and respected by his colleagues at his day job. He's admired and respected at the upscale auto shop he runs. There's nothing wrong with his parents. He gets along with his brother. He has a good relationship with his best friend. There's nothing dark about him that needs fixing. His relationship with Rain is just, he is a lifestyle dom looking for a sub. And he found his ideal one in Rain and worked his ass off to make that work. And it's the same for Rain. He's loved by his mom. He's beloved by his friends as the idiot of their group. And the only thing that really goes wrong with their particular dynamic is the mafia shit with the racing nonsense. But other than that, I really like them for that. With Plume and Kevin in Ghost House, Ghost House, I talked about this earlier. There's just something very specifically queer about the entire way their relationship unfolds that feels grounded in a world that the rest of us could live in as well. And they do the rare thing in BL of showing a couple together after they've chosen each other, which is another reason why I like Paiyu and Rain. I really liked the execution of them falling into the background as support once they transitioned to the Propai and Sky segment of this show. That is incredibly well done. Bloom and Kevin get together properly around episode five or six, and then we get to see them doing boyfriend things for about two solid episodes before they do the required breakup nonsense and get back together. 
because it's romance. You, you have to split the, the couple up so that we see that their lives suck now that they're separate. I get it. The genre mm. demands it. It gets on my nerves. <laughs> so those are my two runners up. I like I like the specific queerness of how both of those couples felt. And I really liked how all of the issues that they struggle from are external to them and not necessarily in their control. And there's just something really special about the way those two pairs genuinely liked each other that really stood out for me this year. Not to mention, for Paiyu and Rain, both of those guys are newcomers. Boy and Todd aren't newcomers, but I was not expecting that from either of them. But in the end, despite all our runners-up and all the other members of the long list, and this one was a long list, we instantly agreed on the winner, which I don't think happened for anything else, did it? Not in this week's worth of selections. No, no, no. So our winner for Best Main Ship uh, Vibe Awards 2022 is Togawa and Nozue from Old Fashioned Cupcake. This one was a surprise for me. The fact that I didn't even like question shows. it. It's not that I don't like Japanese shows. It's that I've been having a hard time with Japanese BL this year. What I have seen, I have enjoyed, but I haven't been compelled to watch much of it. It hasn't been grabbing me. There are two shows in particular that you told me that I had to watch. One that we're going to talk about in our special class program. This one was the other one, Old Fashioned Cupcake. And you're like, you, you've got to watch this. You've got to watch this. So I did. I gave it a spin. No, it and... was short too. So that's why I got her to agree. Yeah. And I was completely hooked. Absolutely, completely hooked. Ben likes stories, and so do I. Ben likes stories about older people finding love, because we are both old. I'm older than Ben. <laughs> I am. Our, I, I am the resident. What did you eat yesterday? Stand yes. anywhere we go. Which is another one that you introduced me to, actually. And again, thank you for that. You're always introducing me to great Japanese BL and queer stories. So we are older than your average BL fan. And as much as we enjoy all the coming of age and first love and all of those narratives and all of the young hot things in college and the office narratives, there is something about watching an older man who is sort of having a little bit of a midlife crisis, be gently pulled into this relationship with a colleague who is still of a decent age. I think he's 30. 31 or 2, I believe. So he's 10 years younger, but he's still not a kid. Watching that happen, it was fascinating to me. I felt like I understood them. I think one of the special aspects about the way Japan handles romance, one of the factors underpinning what they seem to enjoy the most is devotion, particularly if it's been going on for a long time. So with Togawa, he became devoted to Nozui when he first joined the company and was kind of in a rut because he was overworking. And Nozui gently shied him and was just like, well, don't forget to enjoy your life along the way. It's just Mm -hmm. a job. And Togawa took that completely to heart, and he has an incredible zest for life. It's reinforcing his characterization constantly. Like when he's eating something, he shoves huge bites into his mouth. He doesn't eat (laughs) in a polite way, per se, because he loves the taste of food. Mm -hmm. He works out a little bit to stay healthy, but he seems to enjoy 
activities that allow him to be physical and about. He continues to enjoy his life, and when he sees Nosewee forgetting that and kind of spiraling, that's when he moves forward and makes his own regard for him present. And I just really like the choice of someone to share how much they love someone beyond just supporting them quietly because they feel the need to help them more. Maybe it's some of my current love of an airing show is ble- is bleeding over right now, but I really, really enjoy that. And then for Togawa in particular, he's got a genuine desire for Nosewee, like the final oneer from episode four of Old Fashioned Cupcake. Mm, is that one take so, scene so believable it works so well because togawa seems to have gotten himself caught off guard like he's been restraining himself to this time and he finally confesses how he feels about nosewee and it comes rushing out of him in a way that he wasn't prepared for because you get the sense that he's been preparing for this moment and it just sort of happens and it's a mess and it isn't just that togawa is pouring himself out nosewee responds in the moment even though he's a bit overwhelmed by it and there's just something really special to me about the 10 years of gentle support they gave each other, then turning into committed dedication that, as much as I really loved a lot of BL this year, I was asked who was the best, who was the best ship of the year. It's these two. I would have mentioned in the pre-show that I process my feelings through media because I'm not always sure of what I'm feeling. But if I see a character going through something, it triggers something in me, something maybe that I have been noodling in the back of my head or some aspect of my life that I couldn't figure out. And it clicks for me when I see the character going through it. So one of the things for me, I was watching Old Fashioned Cupcake at a point in my life where I am going through a bit of a midlife crisis myself. (laughs) I've been sort of through the ringer the last few years in terms of what is the meaning of life? What am I doing here? What is my purpose? Why don't I enjoy things anymore? And uh, watching Togawa take Nozue to these little cafes and feed him these desserts and tell him, let's have some mindless fun. Let's gossip. Let's talk about the things that teenage girls talk about. Let's be silly. Let's be immature a little bit. Let me remind you that life is fun. That didn't translate as well in the initial subs, but there were a lot of Japanese levels of interaction with the way that they were playing with gendered language and familiarity of language in all of their interactions Mm -hmm. that is unfortunately difficult to translate into English because we don't have those many hierarchies right away. But The way they would speak to each other at the office was completely different to the way that they would speak to each other on the dates that they were having, which Nozoe didn't realize were dates. And then again, it was a completely different way from the way that... Togawa in particular spoke to Nozue when he had that moment and became overwhelmed and kissed him. There are levels of intimacy, there's levels of formality, there's all of these different things happening because they have such a complicated relationship in the sense that they are senior and junior at work, they have such a big age gap, they are, I hate these terms, I never like using them, but the semi and uke thing as well. 
there were so many levels to what was happening between the two of them. In addition to all this stuff about Nozue's midlife crisis and his existential feeling of, well, it's just a straight shot to the grave at this point. So why am I even, there's nothing to enjoy. The dynamics of it are so fun. And one of the things that I enjoy about BL, the way that it uses language, because Asian languages, they have so many levels of pronoun and tone and everything for speaking to people who are at different levels of familiarity and different levels of age and different levels of all these things, that those nuances that you don't get in Western languages, you can do it in a Western production, but it's much harder to get the same idea across with the economy of language that you can in an Asian production. So I really, really enjoyed that about Old Fashioned Cupcake. I enjoyed Tagawa and Nozui just vibing, having a great time. I enjoy when the feelings boiled over. I enjoyed how Nozui was into it, but then he was so scared because he had never even considered before in his life that he could be queer. And it was just like overwhelmed, completely overwhelmed. And then at the end, when he goes to Tagawa in the end, and they're in the alley, and, and they're, oh my god, you. that ending, it's just, when he accepts the way that he feels, and the way that Tagawa feels about him, and they're in the alley, and they're smiling, and they're, it's so lovely, it's so lovely, I feel about it very similarly to the way I feel about the ending of What Did You Eat Yesterday when Kenji's uh, cutting Shiro's hair. hair, yes. And the way that they've been fighting, I think, over this cafe thing for like an episode or two at this point. And they went to the cafe in the end. And I can't remember exactly what happened. I haven't watched it in a few months. So I have to watch well, the, it again. The cafe because... bit is interesting because it comes up very early in like episode one or two. Kenji suggests mm-hmm. they go do it. And Cheryl doesn't want to be seen or perceived a certain way. And the final sort of movements of the original run of What Did You Get Us Today feature Shiro allowing himself to enjoy these cutesy things because he mm-hmm. knows they make Kenji happy. The end of Old Fashioned Cupcake puts me in mind of that, even though it's quite different, because they're not doing these things to make each other happy. Togawa genuinely enjoys these things, and he wants to share them with Nozue. So it's not a question of one of them doing it for the other person just to make them feel better, but it still has the same feeling. I don't really know why, but I think it's just that feeling of love and understanding and acceptance that they have it is for the each rare other. Show this, it is the rare show from this past year that I genuinely hope gets a continuation. I do. I want to see more of them. I want to see what domesticity is like for them and i gotta be honest one of the things i really want to see from japan at some point is intimacy from committed people i think of all of the countries producing bl they're the country that i most want to see tackle that like thailand came a little bit close to that this year with my ride with mork's uncles it's something that i really want to see positively explored these two were really great we had a lot of people on this list for potential consideration. Again, I've seen a lot more stuff than Nini, but we were obviously going to agree on these two, but I didn't feel a strong sense of, oh man, I need to argue for a bunch of the other people who 
ended up not even making the nomination cut because as good as they are, Togawa and Nozui stand out in this year as a dynamic that one, I think really only Japan can do. And Mm. two, as something that stands above the genre. Like I joke sometimes that Japan languishes a bit. They realize they surrendered J-pop to Korea and now K-pop is dominant and they've kind of laxed and they let Thailand have BL, but Thailand doesn't ever consistently hit Japanese quality levels. They didn't feel threatened by it. But with Mm -hmm. the current rise of Korea and the Philippines putting out some noteworthy products that people want in Japan, like that's part of the Game Boy's distribution hell, is Mm -hmm. the Japanese people apparently really like Game Boy's and it's affecting (laughs) its distribution. Korea's in the space and Thailand's putting out some great products because I told Sunset about you clearly was a moment that affected the whole world. Not that particular podcast. We'll talk about that at some point for sure. It feels like Japan is trying to do this thing where it's, as a reminder, we let you have this. L-E-T. Mm-hmm. And Togoa and Nozui feel like one of those examples. I think also from Japan this year, there were a lot of, all of the standout couples for me that I think really lingered with me this year. Most of them came from Japan. For me, this year, I have been so Thai-heavy because I think in a certain way, Thai BLs, even the challenging ones, are easier to watch than some of the other countries. They're easier to slide into. The emotions are so juked. You feel them in a particular kind of way. Whereas, particularly with Japanese BL, you almost have to work for it a little bit. So I don't think I felt like doing a lot of that work, which is why I watched very few Japanese productions in the past year. Mostly ended up watching what you recommended, Ben, which would have been Old Fashioned Cupcake, Koisanu Futari, which we're going to talk about in another episode. And what else did I watch from Japan this year? I think I watched more old stuff from Japan this year. So I watched Tsukushikari finally, and I haven't been feeling to invest in that particular kind of way. I've been really Thailand focused. I haven't watched anything from Taiwan. I've watched only a few things from Korea, only a few things from Japan. But it's I, a real disappointment that you skipped out on some of the, op- the offerings from Taiwan because we'll, yeah, we'll probably just, talk about the Taiwan stuff more next week because we're going to be talking about some music stuff where that'll come up in, Yeah, I I think we're definitely going to talk about Taiwan in our next episode because I think we'll be doing sort of a country by country breakdown as part of our industry discussion. So look out for that. But in the meantime, let's wrap this up. We've got to close this one off. Otherwise, we will talk forever. You know, we will. Congratulations to all (laughs) of our winners. And for those of you who weren't nominated or did not win, please know that it was not for lack of love for the work you did this year. Oh my, you should see some of these long lists. 2022 was an incredible year for the genre. In a way that... It really was. Like, there were some misses this year, but the swings were so noteworthy that Mm -hmm. I don't really feel like there was a lot of phoning it in this year. Everybody really tried to bring their best efforts to whatever project they were involved in. And there was there was something worthwhile to talk about in every show that I watched. Even the shows I dropped, 
there was something really special happening in that show that was worth discussing. For me, of the 15 shows <laughs> that I watched in 2022 <laughs> from beginning to end, I think it might have been more than 15, but I didn't watch anything close to as many as you did. But I got into the things that I knew were going to give me brainworms because those, for me, it's much easier to go into something that I know is going to haunt me in a particular kind of way, not in the way the Japanese cinema haunts me. <laughs> This has been the first part of the very important Internet BL Awards, the Vibe Awards for 2022. All the winners, congratulations. Your plates will be in the mail. Those of you who joined us, thank you. Thank you very much for listening to our inaugural ramblings. Our next part, part two, which will be going up very soon after this one, is our technical awards and industry discussion. So we're going to talk all things behind the scenes, music, production, direction, all those kinds of things. And we're going to talk a lot about... We're going to get real nerdy. Then we're going to talk shoot the shit about what 2022 was like for us in terms of what we watched what we didn't watch what we were interested in what are the themes that we saw happening both in the art and in the industry so look out for that that'll be following on really soon and just to give a little teaser our part three of the five awards are going to be our best in class and our special yeah, class, which I think you will not want to miss. We have two special class awards to give out. I think you'll like what we chose. I think you will like what we have to say about them. We've held it. We haven't discussed these at all because we did not want to blow our wad, so to speak. So you'll be getting our takes fresh on our special class program. So look out for that. Anything else you want to say before we leave the people, Ben? No, it's been a lot of fun. And I'm just glad that we're finally doing this. And I can't wait to get into the part two stuff. Ben and I are nerds. So, of course, the nerdiest part of this is going to be our most fun part. We are out. See you next time. Bye. Bye. Say bye to the people, Ben. Thank you. And then. <laughs>